The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Time now to open the scriptures together. We've been walking through the book of Colossians. We go there again. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word, or if you need one, grab the Bible in the pew rack. And we're opening to Colossians chapter 2. It's on page 984, uh, or whatever page that you have in front of you. But do turn with me to Colossians 2. Uh, and uh, the title of this sermon is A Word to the Thrill Seeker, and that might not be what you immediately think it is. Some of you, I suppose we could divide humanity in two ways. Uh, some of you are okay and even love riding roller coasters, and you would do that all day long, and you've got no problem with it. And there are others of you who would say, don't put me within a, you know, five square miles of a theme park. I'm not going to do it. I did it once. It terrified me. Never again. And we think of some people who like those types of exciting things as thrill seekers, adrenaline seekers. They want the rush of it all and the experience, and other ones of us say, not for me, no way. Uh, when I'm using the word thrill seeker, a word of the thrill seeker this morning, I don't mean in terms of adrenaline rush and roller coasters and bungee jumping and skydiving and base jumping and all the rest. Uh, I'm, I'm using it in the sense of those who would seek spiritual thrills. Seeking spiritual thrills. So a word to the spiritual thrill seeker is what it might more appropriately be. And what I mean by that, and what I hope will become clear with what Paul says by the Spirit here in Colossians 2, is that there are those people within the Christian faith who are always about trying to chase the next radical spiritual experience and out-of-the-ordinary spiritual experience. And they say things like, I just had this most amazing encounter with God and God spoke to me and he showed me these things or this happened in the most you know, ecstatic moment of spiritual awakening or whatnot and people who are always chasing spiritual thrills. Uh, I think the Bible has something to say to these folks and I think that that's what our text is about this morning. So that's what we want to see. And you might say to yourself, hey, you know, I really don't have much context for what that's talking about at all. What I hope to make clear and I hope what we see in the scriptures today is that when God sets out his purposes for the Christian life, when he lays out for you what a Christian life looks like, it is wonderfully ordinary. We've used this term in the past to describe the church and the ministry of the gospel. What I want to think about it today in relationship to the Christian life, the ordinary Christian life as a beautiful, glorious thing. I want to draw you into that today with Colossians chapter 2. So let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the scriptures, and then we'll hear them together in Colossians 2. Gracious God, we, we pause now as we open up your living word and pray that as your Holy Spirit so moved the Apostle Paul to record these words for us as your divine truth and without error, we pray now, Lord, that that same Spirit might rest upon us to receive by faith the word which you have given. Lord, in our natural estate, we cannot reason ourselves into your kingdom. And we cannot rationalize ourselves through the truths of the Bible. But by your spirit, the mind is illuminated and the heart is opened to receive that which you have spoken. So Lord, descend upon us, we pray, by your spirit, that we might believe with faith and live in obedience the truth which you declare to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now hear God's word from Colossians 2. We're specifically looking at verses 18 and 19. 
hear the Word of God this morning. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from which the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let me remind you with a word of context of where this fits in the bigger picture of what Paul is doing in Colossians before we get into the specific details of what verses 18 and 19 are saying, because you might wonder, why, does, why are we taking these as a standalone text? Well, because they do stand on its own, but it also fits in a larger context. Remind yourself that what the Apostle Paul doing, is doing in the letter of Colossians is that he is addressing himself to a congregation that he has never himself met, never himself attended, but is concerned for their progress and spiritual growth because they were a relatively new and small Christian church. He wants them to set them on the right path so that they would not be distracted from things that would lead them astray from a true and sincere walk in following Jesus. So just let's remind ourselves about kind of the overarching context. If you go back to Colossians 1, verse 23, Paul says that he wants these Christian believers, Colossians 1, 23, to, it says, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he is saying to them, look, you heard the gospel and you believed the gospel. And what he wants the Colossian church to do is continue to believe the gospel and continue to walk according to the gospel and have their lives continually transformed by Jesus Christ as they seek to obey him as their Lord and Savior. What Paul does here in the body largely of chapter 2 is that he has been issuing warnings to the Colossian church. And the reason why he is issuing warnings is because there are plenty of things that will lead the Colossian church away from the very thing he is hoping to see in them. So again, in Colossians 1.23, he says, continue and be stable and steadfast. But there's lots of things that seek to bring about instability. Seeking to bring about a lack of steadfastness and an insincerity, really uh, uh, turning away from Jesus Christ. That would rob them of their faith, destabilize them, and cause them to shift from the hope of the gospel. And dear church, we're 2,000 years separated from this letter, but there are lots of things in the world that seek to call you away from the hope of the gospel. And what we as Christian believers seek to do is to be continually called back to the hope of the gospel again and again and again. That's why what Paul says is so important. But there are so far three particular things that he is warning them about to be uh, things that would destabilize them. Bring about insincerity and shift them away. And the first one was in chapter 2 verse 8 where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. In other words, lead you astray by their cunning words and earthly human wisdom to go away from Jesus. Take you to the next great fad and philosophy or worldview of the culture and move away from Jesus. Paul says, don't be persuaded by such persuasive speech, but be stable and steadfast. 
The second warning came last week. We saw it in verse 16 where he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. And the destabilizing risk there was the legalistic tendency that people often have to judge people according to the Old Testament law when Jesus has fulfilled that law. So if you remember last week, it's not the case that the Christian believers should feel guilt when they eat shrimp because we are not under the regulations of the Old Covenant. We are under the New Covenant in Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law for us. And so it would be a particular form of legalism to insist that you must obey the Old Testament law or you're not a sincere Christian. And that was happening in Colossae, which is why Paul says, don't let that happen among you. Don't let anybody pass judgment on you. That would destabilize you and take you away from Jesus. He doesn't want that. And we come today then to the third warning there in verse 18. And you know that these are warnings by the phrase, don't let anybody or let no one. Which suggests to us that there were people in Colossae that were seeking to do these very things. Seeking to take you away into captivity, chapter 2, verse 8. Seeking to pass judgment on you, chapter 2, verse 16. And now in verse 18, there are those who are seeking to disqualify sincere Christian believers on this basis. So Paul's warning today is, don't let anybody disqualify you. So, what is the essence of what he's warning them about? Again, verse 18 says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now, this is uh, one of the more difficult parts of the book of Colossae because well, we don't have a lot of detail about exactly what this is talking about so we kind of we make some certain inferences from historical practices in other uh, towns like Colossae to say here's likely what's happening and it was likely this it was likely the case that there was a group of people in Colossae who were a part of the church but who had another foot in some strange occultic practices of pagan worship and were seeking to say you can't be a true Christian if you're not doing the things that I'm doing. So it was a focus on these ecstatic spiritual experiences. Paul raises them and really groups them all together there in verse 18. He's talking about several different kinds of things, but he throws them all into one, these various ecstatic spiritual experiences again in verse 18. Asceticism, the worship of angels, going on in details about visions, so what he's isolating is this kind of spiritual thrill-seeking that's happening where people would say, I have these incredible experiences, and if you don't, you're not a real Christian. You're disqualified from real Christianity because only the real Christians experience these thrilling spiritual experiences. Again, asceticism, the worship of angels, visions, all these various things. So, quite frankly, historically, we don't have a lot of information about what exactly this means. It might mean that there were people in Colossae who were literally worshiping angels rather than Jesus Christ. They were worshiping the servants of God rather than God himself. Uh, it's more likely the case, perhaps, though, that people were boasting about the fact that their worship that was separate from the Colossian church... You had the gathered Colossian church, and then you had these other people who were doing their own other types of worship services 
mixed together with pagan practices, and they said, these worship services are so great that the angels descend and worship with us. That doesn't seem to be happening here in the Colossian church, you and your boring worship. When we go worship in our other temples, the angels descend upon us and we worship with them. The angels are engaged in our worship, unlike you and your boring, ordinary worship there where you read the Bible and hear it proclaimed to you. So, there is this very strange thing happening in Colossae where people suggest that they are unique, they are special, in that they have this direct, angelic lineage to a higher state of spiritual experience, and you ordinary Colossian Christians, you're disqualified because you're not like us. So their boasts are on the basis of trying to impress with drama and spectacular spiritual experiences. They are looking to promote exciting realities, to thrill the mind and thrill the heart and thrill the senses. And if I just push pause here for just a second and translate it into the 21st century, these things still happen. They still happen when Christian worship is designed with the purpose of just flashing and raising excitement and just being a thrill-seeking experience to say, wow, look at this, I had this incredible experience. The lights and the sounds and the lasers and the smoke and the whatever. This very thing is still happening. Their boasts are about thrill-seeking spiritual experiences that would then make them say, we really worship because we worship this way, unlike you and your boring worship. Now, I wonder if you've had something of an experience like this or know people like this, because it's not just as it relates to like organized worship and these types of experiences, but the way people live their Christian life, that there are some people who are just constantly chasing some form of incredible spiritual experiences and spiritual highs or mountaintop experiences, and they say that they've had visions and incredible things happen to them, and God speaks to them, and they say things like, Oh, if you only knew the incredible experiences that I've had. God spoke to me and you're sitting there going, is there something wrong with me? He doesn't seem to be speaking to me in the way that you think he's speaking to you. I had this experience in college. I had a friend who was a part of a particular tradition that really placed this heavy emphasis on signs, wonders. It was a very charismatic uh, experience. And it was a Wednesday night special service, and he said, oh, my church is is having what we call a prophesying, and a prophet is coming in, and he's going to come in and prophesy. You should come. And I thought to myself, I mean, I I don't know anything about that. I was still relatively young and didn't know how to make heads or tails of those types of circumstances. So I went with him, and uh, basically what happened over the course of two hours was this guy up front going up and down the aisles of the church and plucking people out of the congregation, making them come up front and saying, God told me this about you, and I'm going to tell everybody now. Sometimes it was positive and sometimes it was negative. And sometimes it was very uh, uh, focused on proclamation of what God told me you're going to do with your life. This is what's going to be true about you. And God gave me the word and I'm giving it to you and announcing it to everybody. And that happened. This guy drugged me up front and started talking about me. And I'm just like, I can't even imagine. I didn't know what to do. I was honestly quite scared. He didn't say anything, you know, super specific. uh, But it it was just strange. It was strange when somebody comes up to tell you and says, God told me this about your life. And you think to yourself, I don't, I don't know about that. That is concerning 
in this time, both in the time of Colossae, because what that does is it burdens people, actually. Do you see? It burdens people. When somebody says, God told me this about you, it burdens that person with a sense of expectation that they can't do anything other with their life than what that person supposedly said God told them. It places a burden. And then it would disqualify them if they do something other than what they were told this person supposedly said God said to them. Do you see the confusion that this would sow in a community? Do you see the discord and the frustration that this would bring about in Colossae and it still does today? It's wrong. That's what Paul is saying. This way that people say, God spoke to me, leaves us wondering again. Well, he doesn't seem to speak to me the way he speaks to you. Am I some kind of second-class Christian? When that type of thing is used to disqualify those who don't share similar experiences, it results in rejection and isolation and disunity, and that is what Paul is speaking against here. He is speaking against the spiritual thrill-seeker who is always trying to assert that their unique spiritual experience puts them at a higher plane and tier than everybody else. And Paul says, that's not the way of the Christian church. Look at what he says. He's having none of it. In verse 18, he's exposing what's really going on there when he says, let no one disqualify you for these various things that they're doing. What are they really? They are, he says, at the end of verse 18, puffed up. Without reason, by sensuous mind. Which is Paul's way of saying, look, what they're saying, it might seem impressive. It might even seem very spiritual. But what it is, it is arrogant pride. It's not true Christian spirituality. It is fleshly pride. Because people who promote this way are actually focused on themselves because they're constantly talking about their spiritual experiences and their spiritual highs. The word that Paul uses there for sensuous mind could also be translated mind of the flesh. That is, they don't have a spiritual mind. They have a fleshly mind, a mind that is governed by sinful propensities and priorities rather than spirit-illuminated minds. Paul says that type of activity is not righteous. It's unrighteous. It's not spiritual, it's of the flesh. And it's pride and arrogance. And when that comes into the body of Christ, it has an effect that produces this disunity of people disqualifying others. When people who say they have these experiences insist that that is normal for the Christian life, it undermines the confidence of other Christian believers. People who end up feeling like if they don't have these experiences, they must be some kind of spiritual failures. And what it is, is it's just like what verse 16 and 17 was talking about. It's legalism. Or what we explained last week, it's imposing a law upon other people that God doesn't impose. And then insisting that they live this way or they're not faithful. It's legalism. It doesn't build up true Christian community. And Paul wants these Christian believers to see how unruly that type of behavior can really be so that they would avoid that type of disunity that's constantly chasing the exciting and the dramatic, that looks attractive, impressive, powerful, but it's actually counterfeit dangerous. It's a virus, to use the metaphor we used last week, a virus that makes the body sick. And the church is the body of Christ and when viruses of false teaching and false practices creep in, it infects. 
So there must be a treatment to the virus to bring healing. And what is, what is the treatment plan for a church that is being divided by people who are supposing these ecstatic spiritual experiences and then looking down on other people who don't experience them? What, is, what should be done? He explains it in verse 19. How do we deal with this mutation of legalism to the people who are constantly chasing these spiritual highs, these experienced seekers who think that spiritual ecstasy is the real result of godliness, he says in verse 19, what you're not doing is you're not holding fast to the head. Verse 19, you're not holding fast to the head, meaning Christ. He's saying that these spiritual experiences and those spiritual experiences being the ground and foundation of our Christian identity are actually not the result of spiritual health. The mark of true Christian authenticity, the mark of true Christian sincerity, the mark of the true Christian life, the mark of the true Christian church is a focus on Jesus. It's not complicated. It's just that it very much challenges those who are always about themselves, their experiences, their emotions, their excitements, but they're just about them, not Jesus, and that's the concern. Jesus must be the focal point, the source of life, the fountain from which we drink living water, the focus of our praise, the source of our spiritual nourishment, not these exciting things to just excite the senses and then send you away then to promise if I come back, I'll give you more excitement and more excitement. Consequently, that's why we worship the way we do. Not, not just because we're convinced that the Bible ordains that and gives that direction, but if, if our philosophy of ministry here at Edgington, if our elders sat down and said, what, what can we do just to get people in the door? We'll do anything just to get people in the door. What, what that will result is a philosophy of ministry that says, we gotta, we got to do something big, grand, exciting to make people all kinds of impressed, so they'll come. Well, what are you going to do next week? And the week after that, and the next month, and the next year? Are you really going to incrementally increase the excitement, and the lasers, and the sound, and all that? Is that really the model? We believe that that's not. We believe that it's not. These ecstatic experiences are not the ordinary Christian life. The ordinary Christian life is a life that sees Jesus Christ as the source of spiritual life and receives from Jesus Christ true spiritual growth. It's not dramatic. It's not focused on angelic worship. It doesn't emphasize some kind of direct access to the voice of God or visions or the truly charismatic spiritual experiences. No, it looks like this. It looks like ordinarily drawing from the source of spiritual life, namely Jesus Christ, the head. Paul says in verse 19 that it is by this way that the body is nourished. It is this way that the body is knit together by its strengthening joints and ligaments, grows. Spiritual growth happens not by flash in the pan excitement, and, but by regular ordinary Christian life of receiving God's grace through His appointed means. And so, what that means is we draw deeply from the source of life, which is Christ ourself, our head, as He gives us His Word, as He gives us His sacraments, 
as he provides to us the fellowship of the body of Christ, those are what we call the ordinary means of grace, the word, sacraments, and Christian fellowship. And it is these ordinary elements in which God has vested his extraordinary grace so that as you receive them, you grow across your life, across a lifetime of Christian faithfulness, hearing the word, receiving the sacraments, being blessed in the fellowship of God's people. That is the type of spiritual growth that happens incrementally over a long season. But if you're lacking confidence that that's the way, ask an older Christian believer to look back over their life and survey and see the ways in which God has blessed them. As they attended to the word, as they received the sacraments, as they had fellowship among God's people. It is not extraordinary, ecstatic, thrill-seeking experiences, but the ordinary preaching of the word of God. Do you want to know where God speaks to you, loved one? Here. He doesn't speak to you in subjective visions and dreams that can't be objectively confirmed. That's a dangerous standard for the Christian life. He speaks to you here. When God's word is being proclaimed, the voice of Jesus is being spoken to you by way of the ordained minister. That's what we understand to be the preaching of the word of God. Loved one, when he feeds you at the table, he nourishes your soul and gives you strength. That's how you grow. He reminds you that you are baptized and included into his family. He reminds you that you are claimed as you say, I'm a baptized believer. I am nourished at the table. I am sealed at the font. This is who I am. And he blesses you and strengthens you in the midst of this Christian fellowship as you have relationships, as you draw encouragement and strength from one another. That's what the Christian life looks like. So what then this is, is competing visions of the Christian life. One that is based on constant thrill, constant excitement that needs to be replaced again and again and again, that is actually focused on me and my thrill. And then there is an ordinary Christian life that to the outward eye, again, is not that impressive. But where God vests his extraordinary grace and power in the word, in the sacraments, in Christian fellowship. The real thing is simple and ordinary, not thrill-seeking, ecstatic experiences because the real thing is focused on Christ who is the head rather than me. Loved ones, this is simply a, a deep conviction about uh, our life and ministry here in this church. And we draw it from the scriptures. And I hope that you understand that just as throughout your life you've been fed there may be like one or two or three or four or five really memorable meals maybe they were holidays or special experiences with family or friends or special guests or dignitaries I don't know maybe you have a few meals that you remember in your life that I really remember that but you probably don't remember every single chicken and vegetable meal you ever had in your life Every single ordinary pot roast. But you ate it. You were fed. You were nourished. They don't stick out. They weren't exciting. It was just Tuesday tacos, right? But you were fed. Likewise, in the Christian life, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, by the ordinary means of grace, the Word of God and the sacraments, you as a Christian believer are being dispensed and served the food of eternal life by which you grow into Christ who is your head and spiritual authority rather than yourself. 
And loved ones, that's good news because it brings unity in the church. So let us be convicted about this as well and heed Paul's warning not to let people disqualify us by their subjective experiences, but know that we are qualified in Christ alone and grow according to His ordinary means. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You that uh, You teach us even these most uh, basic and ordinary things so that we can have confidence and be confirmed that Your truth is good and healthy for us and that Your ways are right. We pray, Lord, that You would give us humility to receive regularly the food of eternal life in the Word and the food of eternal life in the sacraments that we might be blessed. Lord, would You send Your blessing upon this particular congregation that Christ would be made much of, that we would be exalting in His glory, and Lord, we would grow as a result of it. We pray in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.